Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 534 with Luke Dirks. I would say what I'm really happy about and the, the reason that I consider Tusk a success is that it's been busy since day one, but the type of busy evolved over those two years from that sort of food tourist, like I'm going to go check that box so that I can say I checked it out to we get a lot of regulars here. And that means that we've been successful by developing regulars, by making connections in the neighborhood, and by ultimately like developing a real good word of mouth reputation with people in Portland. And so for me, that's what I wanted Tusk to be. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. You got to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system. Wisetail is a forward-thinking training and communication platform built to engage today's workforce. Wisetail is trusted because it grew up alongside some of the most recognized restaurants in the industry. This has helped them shape their products and its functionality through real-world feedback and rigorous testing. Wisetail can help you scale your training initiatives across all locations while empowering your employees to take control of their learning and their professional growth. To learn more, head over to www.wisetail.com slash unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. And if you use my links, you'll get your first three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable. Wouldn't it be great if you could play music directly from your Spotify account in your own restaurant without worrying about being pinched by the music police? Well, guess what? With Soundtrack, your brand, you can. Unlike Spotify Premium, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack, your brand is licensed for business use. And with SoundtrackYourBrand.com, you can import your favorite music from Spotify and share them directly with your guests. This deal typically goes for $26.99, but if you act now, you can get this deal for $19.99 per month per location for life. Get on it. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Luke Dirks. My man, Luke, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am feeling pretty unstoppable. <laughs> I had a lot of coffee today. Nice. So. That is what we like to hear. Yeah. So hailing from British Columbia, but growing up in Oregon in Seattle, Luke Dirks is a graduate of Seattle Pacific University. Shortly after completing his degree in English and literature, Dirks began his career in hospitality. In 2007, Dirks joined Stumptown Coffee Roasters as a general manager and grew into to the role of regional wholesale director. Dirk's passion for running restaurants eventually caught back up with him, and in 2011, he joined Happy Cooking Hospitality. In the summer of 2015, Dirk's moved back to Portland, Oregon for good and joined forces with Joshua McFadden to form Submarine Hospitality, which acquired ownership of Ava Jean's restaurant just before opening Tusk. The accolades have been rolling in ever since. Obviously, Luke, I'm just scraping the surface. I can't wait to dive into your story to find out who you are and what you're all about. But let's get that motivational. Cool. Inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Well, you know, I I knew you were going to ask me that. And so I thought about it. Nice. I didn't really have anything that I, that I go to. But I realized that maybe what sums it up is uh, something my grandpa always used to say, which is no unimportant people. No unimportant people. What does that mean? I think in the hospitality world, it sort of is both 
internally facing and external. So in terms of staff, like from, you know, there's no real sense of importance that's associated with a role. Everyone's part of the team. Everyone's important. Um, and then as you face out really like there's no guest that should be, you know, more important than another guest. Yeah. You know what I love? There's certain things I feel like, uh, we're like going back in time almost like we've, these things we've known forever, yeah. right? And we kind of gone away from them. But now we're realizing that you gotta the basics, just like everybody matters, yeah, right? And totally. Every what was it? No one, un- no unimportant people. people. Yes, man. Like it's that simple and that hard too, yeah. right? To to really include everyone. Yeah. But great way to get this thing started. I can't wait to, uh, to learn more about your story. So where does it all start for you? In your opinion? So, I mean, hospitality starts for me in the home. You know, grew up in a family where. We had meals at home a lot, okay. most, most nights of the week. Um, for us, that was maybe more a function of just necessity. We didn't have a lot of money. We mm-hmm. didn't go out to restaurants. So dining wasn't necessarily part of my life as a kid, but hospitality was. And um, I sort of discovered dining and the whole world of restaurants after college, really. Okay. So yeah. what is hospitality? Take me into, paint that picture of what hospitality was for you yeah. in this early time of your life. I mean, to me, it's all about, you know, ultimately the currency of our industry is empathy. You know, like imagining someone else's perspective, seeing what they need, being ready to deliver mm-hmm. it, um, you know, seeing that they're uncomfortable, you know, adjusting to what someone's giving you. And to me, that's all about just relationship. So that's really what the foundation of hospitality is for me is, is sort of having that really to me, restaurant IQ is having empathy. For yeah. People. yeah. And something else you mentioned, uh, just relationships. I think at the core of it all, that's what our culture is. It boils yeah. down to relationships, yeah, right? Totally. Uh, awesome way to get this thing started. So, uh, you went to school, you studied English and literature. Yep. Uh, graduate yeah uh, were you looking for a job in that world well it turns out there's out? not a lot of people just like you know looking <laughs> to give you a signing bonus to you know be a really an english grad oh. <laughs> so uh, uh reality set in and uh i i moved from seattle back to portland and uh had a my sister-in-law was a host at a restaurant and she got me a job as a busser okay and it all started right there okay yeah so what year did you graduate 2004. And it looks like you started with Stumpfield in 2007. Stumptown. Sorry, yeah. Stumptown. Yeah. Thank you. In 2007. Yeah. Um, so what happened in this three years? That really so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I worked in the restaurant industry here in Portland. I got a job at a restaurant, which is now closed, called Oba. Okay. And I was a busser. And uh, to this day, I still think being a busser at a busy restaurant is sort of the most um, eye-opening position you can have because you kind of see every table, you know, if the kitchen's running slow, you sort of learn all of the ins and outs of a restaurant. Yep. And I think it's a great place to start just to take it all in. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how long were you busting before making a transition? Were you Not busting too for long. Years? I bust for a year, became a server, okay. became, you know, did the, did the typical thing where you kind of just like realize that maybe you want to try serving and then bartending and that. And then, um, uh, I moved back to Seattle, about a year and a half later, and I had the good fortune of sort of bumping into uh, an opening that was a restaurant in Seattle called Cremont. Okay. Uh, Cremont had a really unfortunately short but impactful lifespan. I think it was open for a couple of years. Okay. I was there for, for pretty much the first year and a half. And what that, made it impactful? Well, that was the first restaurant that I was part of that really 
uh, wasn't just about business, but it was about sort of making an imprint on like the restaurant industry. Okay. It felt like an important restaurant in the moment. Um, Scott and Tanya Emmerich had opened it. David Butler was the wine director. It was this great little French bistro in the, in sort of a far flung neighborhood in Seattle. And it was just a really great, you know, hot restaurant for its first year and a half. What was the impact they were trying to make? I think, um, what I loved about that restaurant was it was both authentic and modern. So Scott really came from this like traditional French bistro cuisine background. And that's really the food he was cooking. It wasn't like fusion or flair or anything. It was just really good, authentic French bistro cooking, but the space was really clean and modern and bright and service was sort of only so fancy as, as would sort of help make the experience better. It wasn't kind of unnecessarily, you know, formal and, uh, people really responded well to it. And it was a, it was a fun restaurant to be a part of. Okay. Yeah. So, um, was there something beyond, uh, just serving French food in a modern restaurant that they were trying to achieve that really made an impact? Like what was there an overarching mission that was involved with this restaurant? I think it was, it was just, um, sort of stripping away all that was unnecessary. It kind of had a little bit of a rock and roll vibe to it in that sense where it was just like, it's mostly young people, you know, on the upswing of their careers, feeling pretty excited about what they were doing. Okay. And were you there until the end? No. Okay. I wasn't. So in your opinion, it's something that had a lot of momentum, good energy, fun to work, doing something really cool. What was it in your opinion, looking back at that time that you think maybe, uh, didn't work out for them? Well, um, there, I would say that one of the lessons I take from that, and I, I was only there for kind of the upswing of it. Yeah. Um, but I know, you know, having watched it that the, I think more than ever, the restaurant industry is this industry of real intense flashes. And if your business model is to make as much money as you can in the first two years and then close down and reconcept yep. and do it again, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. If you want to be open for 10, 15, 20 years, you have to do the hard work of maybe making some more uh, conservative financial decisions, putting some money in the bank, yeah. uh, and certainly also building regulars. Mm. I think that's, to me, the, the, th- the real difference is like, are you a restaurant that's trying to build regulars or are you a restaurant that's trying to sort of be extract as much and, money yeah. as you can today? Yeah, I got yeah. you. Cool. So um, eventually you joined the team over at Stump Town. Yeah. And uh, how did you find yourself in that role? So I was at that point sort of managing that restaurant, Cremont. And um, my one of my regulars was a guy named Dwayne Sorensen. Okay. And uh, he's a bit of a Portland legend. Yeah. He started Stumptown yeah. Coffee Roasters. Name is very familiar. He's on my hit yeah. list. And Maybe he, you can help out with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I had coffee with him this morning. Nice. Uh, so Dwayne was coming into Cremont all the time and responding to basically what we were doing there. He loved the restaurant, loved the hospitality, loved the wine list. He and I became friends. Cool. And I sort of spotted, in my opinion, a person and a brand that was about to blow up. Yeah. So where was Stumptown at this time? So at that point, Stumptown had three cafes in Portland, here in Portland. uh, And that was it. Okay. So what was it about this brand that like resonated with your gut? Like, why did you know this thing was about to blow up? Well, I mean, a, I love coffee. Mm -hmm. I really absolutely love it. Um, and I felt like their, who they are, what they were timing wise was just perfect for where the coffee industry was at. And then I saw them being one of the first 
Pacific Northwest coffee brands to be making the leap to multi-city. So he was investing in a new roastery and cafe in, in Seattle at that point. It wasn't yet open. And I just sort of felt like I want to be, I want to be part of that. So quickly turned from a conversation to me, you know, leaving my restaurant job to go work for Stumptown. Okay. So beyond the concept, beyond the brand, uh, you developed the relationship with Dwayne. Am I saying Dwayne, right? Dwayne. Yeah. Yeah. Dwayne. Um, what was it about him that drew you in? Because at the end of the day, we already talked about it. It's yeah. about relationships. It's about people. So yeah. what was it about Dwayne that really sucks you in? Uh, Dwayne's a really magnetic personality. He, you know, he is a lot of energy himself. He sort of draws a lot of energy. And I think he's someone who has a real clear, singular perspective. And at that point, that perspective was all about Stumptown. Um, you know, he's gone on to do other things. But... I just saw like a real clear vision for like this brand could be this. We need great people come be part of it. How do you sell you on it? uh, I mean, it sold itself really. I just wanted to be part of it. Mm. I felt like I, 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 at that point, you know, it was funny. I left what was a pretty cushy restaurant job and started as a barista Mm -hmm. at, at Stumptown. And a lot of my friends, would roll through and get coffee and kind of be like, what's (laughs) going on here? Like you just took like a 75% pay cut. What are you doing? And I think it, it proved itself to be a good move. Why did you make that? Why did you take that opportunity for the pay? Even with the pay cut, like what was going through your mind? Why was it worth it? It just was a, it was a, a future thinking, you know, I sort of felt like for me, restaurants were, uh, at that point, I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I thought of myself really as a, like, I want to be part of a company. And, um, that was what drew me to it was, you know, restaurants at that point for me were, I'm a manager at this point. I'm really into wine. Where, where am I going to go from here? And I didn't see myself opening my own restaurant at that point. Mm -hmm. And I saw this company that I kind of imagined myself having a higher ceiling to just sort of grow with. And so it was appealing. So you spent uh, a year with them uh, as a general manager and then you had an opportunity to become the wholesale director. So you kind of removed yourself from the operations of like the food and beverage. And now you're doing like sales. Uh, Why that transition? I mean, I would say it wasn't even a year. I think I was, I was the GM for less than a year. Uh, Well, for me, that was about me realizing that, behind the cafe there was really this whole other operation which is wholesale coffee yeah and wholesale is what pays the bills in the coffee industry right okay. so if you're roasting coffee and you have this cafe you kind of use it as a as a chance to show everyone what you do but you make money selling wholesale coffee to other restaurants coffee shops grocery things like that mm-hmm. and um i sort of fancy myself to be a people person and a networker. And I thought it would be cool to basically take all of the restaurant connections that I had made and start telling people about Stumptown in Seattle. So okay. that's what I started doing. Beautiful. Yeah. So we got to spend some time here because obviously Stumpbound is a nationally known brand. Yeah. Uh, they do a lot of things right. So what yeah. were the biggest lessons you learned being a part of such a well-organized, well-developed organization? Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, they're well organized now. It was a little rough back then. <laughs> well, I won't every, lie. <laughs> every master was once the disaster, as yeah, they say. It was, uh, it was scrappy. But, but the foundation was there. Yeah. So, what so was- this foundation was there, which was that, again, I think this was back to like a great clarity and a vision of what the brand could be, which is everyone had coffee. And, and at that point, most people had evolved beyond like Illy or, or Starbucks. They were using third wave roasters, at least in Seattle and Portland. That was true. 
but Stumptown found a way to tell the story better than anyone else. What so story? The story of the coffee. So mm-hmm. why is know, that so important? I think I think even though people knew or thought they knew a lot about coffee in 2006 or whatever that was, people still kind of thought of it as like a gray powder and Stumptown (laughs) managed to sort of show people like it's fruit. It comes from these places. There's really no such thing as local coffee because Mm -hmm. it doesn't grow around here. And they told the story of the farmer, the producer, the person, you know, managing the, 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 the dry mill. And they really opened up the, the engagement with the coffee consumer in a way that I think people are still catching up with. Mm. And that was, I think Stumptown's real, real unbelievable step forward was like, they told that story better than anyone else. What about the culture? What was it like to be a part of this team doing something that is about uh, more than just a job and about this movement, Mm -hmm. about this movement, about the stories behind the coffee? What was that like? I mean, it's cool. It was certainly felt like you're part of something. Okay. I think a lot of people put, more hours and you know sweat into their job because they felt like they were part of higher purpose something yeah you know something important and like i would say there was a certain element of like the more coffee we sell than someone else sells the better we're doing Mm -hmm. in the world because it was a feeling that stumptown was a brand with a certain ethic that actually was having a positive impact beautiful um what about uh any other lessons you learned during this time, uh, pivotal points for you in your career? Mm, I mean, that was to me all about seeing the restaurant industry from the, uh, consumer side more. So that was the first time I had like an expense account, for example, and I could go to restaurants and get to know the owner, try to figure out who made the decisions. And like that turned me into a real restaurant consumer for the first time. Um, first in Seattle and then, ultimately, which is what brought me to New York um, when we opened up the Brooklyn facility in 2009. Um, and that, yeah, I just became kind of a student of restaurants and from the perspective of someone selling to restaurants, but ultimately still a student of who's good at, who's good at this, like who's, who matters. So what were you learning going into all these restaurants, meeting all these restaurateurs? What were some of the trends you saw or some of the commonalities amongst yeah. these people that you admired? Well, I would say one of the one of the hardest things was Seattle was not a very receptive um, market for coffee sales. So Seattle's been kind of like thumped over the head with like coffee roasters for a long time. So, you know, I'd walk into a place and as soon as they saw me pull out a bag, they'd just be like, let me save you some time. We're not, we're not switching, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, it was tough. It was a tough go in Seattle because there was a lot of, a lot of sort of coffee fatigue already there. Moved to New York 2009, and it couldn't possibly have been more different. What was it like? What was the difference? People were, like, just banging down our door to get coffee. Mm. And it was funny because there had been a few third-wave roasters that had beat us to the market, but they hadn't quite, like, gone all in. And we just, I mean, I don't know if it was smart or just good luck, but we timed the move to New York perfectly. What does all in look like? What do you mean? So, like, shipping coffee from a different city, having a trainer that pops in once every month, having a salesperson that does most of their work on the phone. And so we, we like planted our flag in Brooklyn. We opened a roastery. We hired a bunch of local people. I moved there. A number of other people sort of picked up and moved to New York to sort of say, we're not just going to ship coffee from Portland. 
we're going to become a, a New York brand. So let's talk a little bit about uh, creating a presence in a community that yeah. isn't necessarily your hometown, right? Yeah. Like, what did you learn about getting your roots into a community and being a part of a community, even though technically you were an implant? Yeah. So, I mean, that was that was a huge learning experience for me. And I was also just navigating living in New York for the first time too, which is a whole thing by yeah. itself. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I could handle yeah. that personally. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, for us, it was all about being respectful. Um, we were never the kind of brand or sales people that were you know, looking to sort of trash someone else's hard work to make ours look good. It was just like, here we are. This is what we do. If you're interested in it, we'd love to, you know, show you what we do. And I think for us, like I said, the timing was everything. I mean, New York was waking up to quality coffee in a way that it hadn't before. And we were there at the perfect moment, you know, getting national attention at the perfect time. And it was a, it was definitely a special time to be working for that company because it was a real explosive chapter yeah any other big takeaways uh any real like big learning moments for you in this time before we move on to your next uh opportunity which was happy cooking i would say you know the biggest thing for me was um there was a there was maybe a, a sense of like if i had to critique that era we were running a mom and pop coffee shop from Portland when we should have been running a national brand. And so things like, you know, my, I was the East coast sales rep, me, my cell phone was on the website. So, you know, it wasn't, there was not a lot of work life balance at Mm -hmm. that point in my life. And it was, you know, I think we were probably playing two steps behind where we should have been in terms of where our company was at. Not to make the conversation about money, but you must've been doing like pretty well representing Stumptown Coffee as like the sole sales rep on the East Coast. You would think so. No, really? <laughs> oh, well, that's um, that's disappointing. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I said, it was a company that maybe had like had a was was had a reputation that was like at a ten, but was still like actually behind the scenes, like a pretty small operation. Yeah. So where were you emotionally? How were you as far as your happiness goes at this point in your life? Uh Super excited, passionate, um, you know, inspired, stressed out mm. on on like an unhealthy level. Um, but thankfully, my well, I moved to New York with my girlfriend. Now she's my wife, and we you know had each other through that, and that was a huge you know piece of it to have someone in, with me in that whole process for sure. Cool. So eventually, you made the choice to get out. Yeah. Away from some town. Yeah. What was the nail in the coffin there? What what pushed you away? Not so much a nail in the coffin as much as just a sort of like, again, one of those moments where I felt like the thing that was inspiring me most about my job was we're like rubbing shoulders with all these great restaurateurs in New mm. York. And at that moment, I had a really great uh, entry into pretty much anyone's office. Mm. You know, people wanted to people would give me 20 minutes to talk to them about coffee. So I got to meet a lot of really fantastic restaurateurs and go eat at some really wonderful restaurants. And I was just inspired by that hospitality and I wanted to get back into it. So what were some of the, like the, the moments, the people that you encountered during all these interactions you had, were there any big lessons, any takeaways from just being able to surround yourself with these incredible restaurateurs that you leveraged later in life? Um, I mean, yeah, I think I learned more about restaurant excellence in in that time than I ever had before. What'd you learn about restaurant excellence? I mean, just, you know, there was a whole, I thought I knew 
what great restaurants looked like. Okay. And then you, you know, you, I remember walking through like one of Tom Colicchio's restaurants the night it was opening to make sure all the coffee equipment was in place. And there's like, you know, 150 people working and there's managers, there's like a coffee manager. And I was just like, wow, there it's bigger than I realized, you know? So get specific of what was going on here in this excellent example yeah. where other restaurants fall short. What, what separates the Tom Colicchio's of the world from everyone there? Else? I mean, I think there's just a, there's a scope to the restaurants of New York that are, that's achievable, uh, that, you don't see very very many places. It's such in the a world. competitive market. Yeah, it, like the the things you got to do in New York or Los Angeles yeah. to be competitive to yeah. to to stand at or to sit at the table with the other yeah. restaurateurs. You got to. It's extreme. You yeah, know? It, it, you don't you don't see that level of operation in other places. Yeah, and I think one of the things I like about the New York restaurant scene is people aren't embarrassed to sort of put it all out there and try really hard and mm. do something maybe that's even like weird. Yeah. You and, have to be weird to stand up. And I market. think that in most other markets, there's a sort of like, no, nah, that's not how it's done. Like keep it, you know, like this is what works. And I, I just was inspired by New York's audacity to just like open up weird restaurants or like 300 seat restaurants or restaurants that must've cost $10 million to build out. And <laughs> you're just kind of like, I don't know how that all pencils out, but it's cool. It's inspiring. Yeah. Um, what was like the, the, the most impactful experience you had during the time with restaurants? One thing that really stands out, maybe it's the Tom Colicchio experience. Mm. Anything else that's worth bringing to the surface before moving on? Um, I mean, I think, well, it actually kind of segues maybe a little bit um, because in this area where I was meeting a lot of um, really famous restaurateurs or famous chefs, um, the one of the places that really like stuck out for me as a place I wanted to go to was this brand new restaurant that had just opened called Joseph Leonard. Okay. Tiny little like 35 seat restaurant in the West village. And it was literally the antithesis to the restaurant I just described. So like two bartenders, two servers (laughs) and like, that's it. And the bar is half the seats of the whole space. And it's just this little hole in the wall and everything is, is like feels very authentic and um it had just opened when i got to the city and that was like the the place that sort of captured my imagination and just so happens i became great friends with gabriel stillman who who had just opened it and ended up spending the next four years of my working life with him so i admire you up to this point and i'm sure i'll continue to admire you throughout the conversation but to go into a market like New York and see how crazy it is, how competitive it is, the, the things you have to do at what level you have to operate. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I got this. Like, this is, this is my jam. Like, this is where I want to be. Most people I feel like would see that and turn around with their tail between their legs and run away and say, screw that. Like, that is not worth getting into. Yeah. What was it about you? What, what was going on in your head saying, like, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to make my, not as like, you weren't even working in the restaurants. You're like, I'm going to be like, become a partner yeah. in this market. Like, how did that, how did you like scale? I don't into know, that? man. I don't, maybe I just didn't think about it well enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just sort of like got excited. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just something that I do. I just, I got excited. I get passionate about things and um, I don't, I definitely don't let fear drive my decision-making processes. Um, I just see something that feels inspiring. And, you know, there have been a few pivots in my life that have proven to be good decisions that have been based on, like, walking away from something that seems set to start something else that's maybe unknown, but feeling like 
it has higher, a higher ceiling, you know? So that was another one of those moments where I felt like I was doing something for Stumptown that was, could have, you know, I probably could still be working for them for the, to this day. So ultimately what did the decision look like when you, when you were, when you left Stumptown, um, what was going through your mind? Like what did that, that, you know, that moment yeah. of your life look like? I mean, it's a little terrifying because I, 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 I still have such a huge respect for that company and that brand. Clearly and I, I felt like, am I, am I an idiot for walking away from this job? And, um, but so it was a little terrifying, but I also felt like I, I knew that I had stumbled upon someone and, and an interesting little company that I wanted to, to be part of. And I also, I think I also enjoy building things as maybe more than like maintenance. Um, and so saw again, like maybe similar to seeing Stumptown about to pop. I felt like I saw happy cooking about to sort of like become a really important brand in the New York restaurant scene. So let's, you kind of started to paint the picture a little bit as of like what kind of operation it was, but what was really going on about the, the culture, the people that were involved with happy cooking hospitality that really resonated with you? Like, what was it about this organization that like resonated with your heart and made you want to be a part of it? I mean, again, back to with the people, ultimately that was what it was about was about the people that were doing it. So your business partner, his name again was Gabriel Stillman, Gabriel. So he had started the company. Yeah. So Gabe, uh, is from the Virginia, like outside of DC area, but had moved to New York and had like fallen in love with restaurants. He had started uh, two other restaurants with a former business partner, a place called little owl and a place called market table. And then he and that business partner had had a falling out mm he left that partnership sort of regrouped and opened Joseph Leonard and in 2009, I believe. And, uh, he started it like he literally did a lot of the work in the restaurant himself with his, uh, executive chef partner, Jim McDuffie. And they got a bunch of friends together and like bootstrapped a restaurant in the middle of the West village. And like, basically, you know, did the opposite of what was happening in the industry, which was like bigger restaurants, bigger chefs, you know, bigger build outs. And they just were like, we're going micro. So being so close with Gabe, uh, I'm sure some conversations came up as to what it was with a previous partnership that didn't work. Mm-hmm. What was it? What, what lessons did you learn from his experiences? Well, I, conversations I would say, I mean, I feel comfortable sharing some of that. Uh, I know for him, he would say like uh, having a clear sense of, Um, for him, 50, 50 partnerships maybe are dangerous. Why is that? Uh, well, if you, if you don't have a clear sense of who's the final say in a decision, then you can leave yourself in a sort of locked up dispute. Yeah. Um, and things can't move forward. I have since done the exact opposite of that advice and, and I, and Joshua and I are business partners, but, um, so you're both, so you're doing 50, 50 now. Joshua and I are. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think you're doing differently from what Gabriel did that has you on the same page with your business partner where you're not fighting each other, but you're working with each other? Um, I mean, I think that Joshua and I have had a lot of conversations about what our goals are. And I think in some ways this might sound like pragmatic, but we, we need each other to get where we want to go. Mm. Um, so he needs me, I need him. He does things I cannot do and don't even pretend to. Yeah. And I think I'm the same for him. But our, our goal is it feels like it's the same. So if I'm working really hard and I feel like I'm grinding really hard some week, 
I don't feel like I'm being used because I feel like we're in it together. You know, I think that's the key right there is talking about the goals, having the same goals, going yeah. in the same direction. Do you guys write these goals down? Is it unspoken? Is it just spoken and you got in like in the ether and you just know that yeah. it's in the same place? Or? No, I mean, we, we've spent time like, we, you know, we have like a business plan and mm-hmm. that business plan is, you know, longer than five minutes from now. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but we also spend a lot of time just sort of having dinner together yeah. or drinking wine together or, whatever you maybe know. we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we're yeah. jumping to the current yeah. time yeah um so okay so you, you talk to your business partner through experiences with your business partner yeah. gabriel you realize that he and his original business partner were pulling in opposite directions mm-hmm. had separate goals weren't yeah. really going the same way and you know there was no clear sense of like this is what we're doing yeah so he leaves that group goes and partners with a bunch of other people uh they, they bootstrap they have a small uh organic uh I'll pick it up from there. Yeah. So, so Gabe and a bunch of his friends had opened up Joseph Leonard and it was a restaurant that was extremely inspiring to me. It's it's just the level of energy that takes place in that room is unmatched in my experience. So level of energy, paint that picture. What's what we're paint that picture. What's the conversation look like? What's what's going on there? So uh, first of all, Joseph Leonard's on this like very busy bustling little corner in the West village. And it's tiny. There's not even really a host stand. You walk in and you're kind of like in the middle of the room and the restaurant plays the music probably like a little bit too loud. A lot of times it's hip hop. The lights are usually a little too low and it's all of that, not necessarily to achieve a sense of cool, but like to just achieve a sense of like throwing a dinner party. Yeah. So every single night it felt like you were showing up to a dinner party and what was this a quote unquote brand or was this just a bunch of dudes and gals showing up being like, this is us. It was on purpose for sure. I mean, that's Gabe's whole, he has since become pretty famous for that in New York. I mean, what he, do you mean that he, for that sense of like the neighborhood dinner party restaurant, okay. like Joseph Leonard was that then Jeffrey's grocery across the street, then fedora down the street, then a few others. And I'm, now he's kind of known for that. How do they achieve that sense of, I'm not out to eat at this restaurant, but I'm at somebody's home, a part of this party. Like, yeah. What's going on to, to set that mood? So I think that's part of it is, uh, again, back to like maybe something I experienced at Cremont, which was like stripping away the unnecessary formalities. Um, like I remember there were nights when like the maitre d' and some of the servers would have a competition to see who could get the most unsolicited hugs. And it was just like, they were trying to connect with people and people were responding and there was hugs happening and, you know, phone numbers being exchanged and high fives happening at the door. And the whole thing just had a certain, certain level of like it, whatever brought you to this door at this moment, you're going to have fun in the next mm. two hours and we're going to make sure you have some fun. So give me some examples of some, uh, formalities that are not necessary, like yeah. that you stripped away. I mean, I think, Ways of speaking with people sometimes uh, lean a little unnecessarily formal in the restaurant world where it's, you know, someone walks through and it can be a sort of like, good evening. How are you tonight? Yeah. And or it could just be like a high five and like, what's up, guys? Yo, thanks for coming. How in. are yeah. you? What are you doing? Exactly. How did you come here tonight? How's that different? Yeah. And I think that's huge. You know, people. Why? Well, because people respond to honest communication, mm. I think. So. I think if you treat people and I think that there's a danger to go too far the direction of like lack of any formal, you know, rules. But I think if you treat people like 
um, equals, I think they respond to that. How do you walk that fine line of not going too far? Mm, I'm not sure. I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> okay. Uh, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> so you joined, they were open for a while before you joined. When, when, yeah, when yeah. did they open? What year? Yeah, no. Know? So Joseph Leonard had been open for, uh, I'd say like almost two years. Okay. It's so like 2009 around that yep. time. So Joseph you, Leonard had opened in 2009. You joined in 2011 as a general manager. Yeah. So what was going on with this relationship where he yes. trusted you that much to come on as a general manager with being away from the restaurant industry for like five or four years? <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I, you should probably ask him that when you're in New York. <laughs> Maybe you, you should interview, <laughs> interview Gabe. <laughs> Please. Uh, so Gabe definitely trusted me. Yeah. I think he trusted my, like I was saying before, like maybe my like IQ more than my experience. Okay. I'd never worked in a restaurant in New York, um, but he, I think he saw someone that he could trust. Okay. Um, at that point, Joseph Leonard had been open for a year and a half. Jeffrey's Grocery, which is a restaurant across the street, had been open for like six months. And then... They were about to open a third restaurant called Fedora. Okay. Um, and each of those restaurants had a general manager. And I joined as the sort of like fourth manager to split time between three restaurants. So my first job with Happy Cooking was like a swing manager between three different very busy restaurants. Wow. And then about a month after I started, Matt Kebekus, who was a, a partner and and kind of went on to be my you know work equivalent in the whole group uh, got married and literally all of those people left town for an entire weekend and i managed all three of those restaurants Jeez. on a friday and saturday night in new york <laughs> wow how'd that go <laughs> they went well it was fun they're all within like two blocks of each okay. other so I, I was like check in with the restaurant maybe run some food make sure things were going well run across the street check in run some food Dude, I think I probably made like four four laps an hour. <laughs> it was really fun. I bet, man. Yeah. So uh, after a year, they make you a managing partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Like, what was it? What was it about you? What were you doing right? Like, what was the, about this relationship where they, the trust was there? The what was going on? Yeah. Well, I mean, that was definitely you know I, I think I had worked hard, but I also would say Gabe is the kind of person that I think sees that it can't just be him. So I think for him in his company, he's been a really generous person to give promotions to. Um, He's given other pieces of equity to various partners over the years. And I think for him, that's a very honest way of saying thank you, but it's also self-serving in that like he keeps the talented people in his mix because they feel you know, connected and they literally are because how many partners does he have? I think three or four at this point. Okay. How many did you have when you were there? I was the first. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a really interesting topic. I feel like a lot of people say partnerships don't get involved. Uh, it never goes right, but I kind of, I don't really subscribe to that way of thinking. I think in today's market with how competitive yeah. it is, if you really want to be the best, you've got to offer equity. You, yeah. How else are you going to attract onto yourself the best unless you give them like skin in the game? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think and you have he, to do that. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, that takes care of that. Yeah. So eventually after three years as a managing partner, um, you leave, you come back to, to yeah. Portland, uh, but how did you grow as a, cause this is the first time you've had equity in a business. Yeah. What did that look? What did that, that, uh, that evolution as far as you personally goes, how, take me through that. Well, I mean, that was, uh, definitely a, a learning experience. I, I felt the weight of responsibility differently. Um, I mean, 
to be clear, no one ever felt that weight more than, than Gabe. You know, I, I was a very much a minority partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he carries that weight most heavily. But it, I felt it, and I sort of maybe saw, saw the other side of the curtain a little bit of, like, the intensity of, you know, a slow season and feeling challenged first for cash and things like that. And I felt those conversations for the first time. We also opened three restaurants together. So after those initial three, I was part of that team when we opened up three more. Um, and opening restaurants in New York City is super intense right. and stressful. It gives and, me anxiety just yeah, thinking about it. It's <laughs> exhilarating and terrifying. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was part of that. And I think I saw, I think that's probably where I would trace the realization for myself that I maybe am an entrepreneur more than I realized. Uh, because I really got a thrill out of opening new businesses mm. and just being like, holy shit, this didn't exist. And now it does. Yeah. And people are here and there's a hundred people drinking wine and dining tonight. That's yeah. amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, so you said it was a learning experience. What were the biggest learning, uh, moments for you? Mm-hmm. Like how did you change as a, a person during this time as a professional during this time? Yeah. Well, I would say. That's a role in the restaurant industry in general as a, as a management or ownership is a role where you have to learn some pretty tough lessons related to time management. Okay. Um, there's no, I mean, it's not like the kind of industry where at, f- uh, you know, five o'clock on a Friday, you're like, well, I guess we're done for the weekend. Cause it just doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, we're open every day. Someone's here at 8am and someone's here till 2am. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not careful, you can really let yourself get ground down. Yeah. And so managing your own time, which doesn't mean just saying you're going to stop. It also means like being better about being productive, um, you know, being really extremely productive when you're working and then building up some maybe healthy boundaries about work-life balance. So what were some disciplines, some habits you developed during this time? Some specific things you can say, this is what I started doing mm-hmm. to make the most of my time. And these are the, like, the, these are how I started managing myself. Give me some like specific takeaways that my listeners can start leveraging. In their well, own I mean, I think you have to start your day with a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very dangerous in the restaurant industry. I think you walk into the restaurant and 10 things hit you that you didn't prepare for. And you find yourself, you know, fixing a plumbing problem instead of dealing with that, you know, other thing you were supposed to do. So having a real set, um, list of things that you want to get done. Number one, have, start your day with a plan, have a list, start of your day with a list of things you need to get done and check it throughout the day. What's the second thing you start? Um, I would say beyond that, I would also say like working off site is okay. okay. Um, Work I think remotely. there's a danger to sort of, if you're not seen, maybe people wonder if you're working, but I am way more productive at a coffee shop or in my office or at home than I am working from the restaurant because of what we just talked about. So I think it's totally okay to to sort of text everyone at the morning and being like, Hey, I'm coming in at two this afternoon, but I'm working if you need me, you know, like doing that. So number one would be, you know, have that plan, plan your day out. Number two, work remotely. If it means you're more productive remotely, find out what you need to do to be productive. Okay. And what would number three be if there is a third thing? Um, I would also say, well, I think that in life there just in general, there needs to be, um, some rhythms. And so I don't know that this is a specific advice, but like, I find that I work better if I take time away from work. And so I'm, if I am sort of always feeling like I'm always working, my productivity level goes from 
95 to 90 to 85 to, and pretty soon I'm sort of like half productive all the time. So taking actual days off, getting away from the restaurant, turning the phone off, I find that when I come back, I'm actually back to 100% and more productive. So what did you do to make sure that you block that time away? Like how did, it, how did that happen? Well, so this is one thing for me, which is important is have a team. Mm. So I don't think I ever want to be the like the Lone Ranger restaurant person. That's like it's all about me and my personality and my if I'm here, then the restaurant's open. And if I'm not, it's closed because I think that's really dangerous. Um, and also it's just not what I want to do. So I think also having a team and being willing to uh, delegate and let other people finish a project that you started is huge. So let's see if we can summarize this. Have a plan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, work remotely or in whatever setting you're most productive, uh, set time aside for yourself, have, have a rhythm. Yeah. And then, uh, surround yourself with people that you can trust to do the job. Yeah. So you, okay. I think that pretty well sums it up. Beautiful. Awesome. Any other big lessons in your life at ha- uh, happy cooking hospitality that are like maybe lessons on opening a restaurant, mm-hmm. maybe a failure, maybe a time you yeah. fell hard on your face. Yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> what, failed would, once. Okay. Tell me, yeah. take me through it real quick. So we opened a restaurant in the, Chelsea neighborhood of New York okay. called Momar and it failed. Why? Uh, well, I would say looking back on it, I have a really good sense of maybe why it did. I think we had really good intention and, and I don't know that we could have avoided these learning lessons without living through them. But if I had to summarize, I would say like one, um, location. Sometimes you think you're going to be a pioneer and everyone's going to flock to you because you're the first spot to open in that little neighborhood. And sometimes you reap the rewards of that. And sometimes no one's opening in a certain neighborhood for a reason. <laughs> so, so what did you do wrong? Did you not do your market research? Was it? Uh, I think that maybe if I had to be honest, I think there was a little bit of ego, uh, which was like we had opened, well, Gabe and his team had opened up three and then I had been part of two more really successful openings like New York times reviews, you know, like on the, on the covers of magazines, that kind of thing. And then we were just like, okay, where's the next home run going to be hit? And then it didn't happen that way. So what was it reflecting back? You said a lot of people weren't opening restaurants Mm -hmm. in Chelsea, this area of New York. What was the reason? Like, what was the take? What what, what do you think it was about this area that just doesn't uh, support a restaurant? Well, I think it's less about the neighborhood and more about the actual location of that restaurant, which was on a really busy avenue. Okay. So sometimes I think, you know, there are some old school (laughs) truths about opening spots that are important to listen to, which is like, you know. Foot traffic, things of that nature. Yeah. So we were just on like, you know, 6th Avenue and people are just ripping, or sorry, 8th Avenue. People just ripping past you in taxis all day long. Yeah. But they're not stopping to yeah. eat. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being thoughtful about location. And then also I would say the, probably the bigger takeaway for me was write a business model that succeeds if you're only moderately successful. And I think that we wrote a business model that maybe assumed home run status. Yeah. And you also sometimes need to be able to hit a solid single and just still have your shirt on when it's all over. And I think that that was a little bit of a mistake where we sort of swung for the fence and we didn't write a, you know, the other restaurants had all been, like I said, kind of like built in a way where maybe they were a little more scrappy. And this was maybe the first time where it was like, let's go big, let's build something really beautiful and bigger. And 
we got kind of bit by that. So you're, you're operating at huge margins or, or you, you, would, you would need to operate at huge yeah, margins basically to be successful. So what was it about this, uh, operation that made it so expensive? Was it the sourcing of the ingredients? Was it scratch now, or what was going? So physical layout makes a huge difference. So labor, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure probably the labor conversation comes up in every single one of your interviews often. Yeah. Uh, so labor is a huge deal. And if the physical space, um, doesn't have a sort of elasticity to it in terms of how you can staff it, then that's going to be a problem. So, so what was it about this physical space that made you need to have outrageous labor expenses? So the way it was laid out was, so the kitchen was in a basement. Okay. Below the kitchen in the sub-basement was a prep kitchen and the ice machine. The entryway had a small little restaurant and bar. Then there was sort of a second little small room back down a hallway, and then there was a huge patio in the back. So you kind of had to always have like too many people on to make the thing function. You can't scan that. You can't yeah. just stand in one spot and go like, this yeah. is how we're doing. You can't take it. So all you kind of, you kind of always had to have a baseline amount of human beings around to just open it and turn the lights on. Okay. Which is fine if you're always busy. Yeah. But if you're not, then you, and that's what I meant by like having a space that has a certain amount of elasticity. Like if you open up a square restaurant with a bar right in the middle and you're kind of slow, you can probably run it with a bartender and a server and a manager. Mm hmm. If it's super busy, you can staff appropriately, but you can kind of flex. And so that's a huge lesson for me. Mm. Uh, always have a space that has the ability to flex and and reduce if it's slow. And you can still kind of make it pencil and not have it be kind of an all or nothing transaction. Cool. So eventually, uh, 2015, um, after three or four years with the company, what was going on in your mind? Why, why come back to Portland? Yeah. Were you homesick? Uh, a little bit. Um, so biggest change is that my wife and I had our first kid Okay, and having a kid in New York is a real situation. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was less about professional development and more about life choices. So, How'd your partners feel about you leaving the group? It was hard. Yeah. That was really emotional. I, I still to this day, like love those guys and we're very good friends we left on great terms. I think that it was a little bit, you know, heartbreaking on both sides. But I was, you know, I think it would have been worse if I was like, hey, I'm going to go work for a competitor. It was like, I'm, I'm leaving New York and moving to the West Coast. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just, my wife and I had a kid. We now have two. Uh, at that point, we were just like, I don't think this is where we're really going to set down roots and raise a family. And I think that we had always known that. But the reality of having a kid there maybe forced our hand a little bit. And we started thinking about where did we want to move to? And, you know, the Pacific Northwest is my home. It's not my wife's. My wife's from Israel. Okay. Um, so we kind of scanned the globe. And really, we, we didn't have a fixed idea. We just knew we wanted to move. And ultimately, after all of our you know, pro con sessions, we chose to move to Portland. Okay. So, um, did you, ha at this point, had you already known Joshua McFadden or yeah, we were friends. Okay. So yeah. when did that relationship pick up? Well, it all comes back to Dwayne Sorensen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, having worked with Dwayne for years, he and I are still friends. And, uh, after I had left Stumptown, he had kind of actually gotten into opening restaurants too. Okay. And so he'd opened up a restaurant here in Portland and he was about to open up 
another restaurant um, in 2012 with uh, a guy named Joshua McFadden, okay. who was going to be the executive chef of this Italian restaurant he was going to open called Ava Jeans. Ah, oh, gotcha. And Dwayne introduced me to Joshua about a year before the restaurant opened. What and year is this? Were you still in New York? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was in New York. They were they were actually out in New York for back when the James Beard Awards used to still be there. Okay. Uh, and um, so yeah, that would have been like 2011. Okay. And uh, so Dwayne introduced me to Joshua. And we were buds just like straight away, got along really well. And it also turned out that he and I had a million mutual friends. Joshua also worked in the restaurant industry in New York for years. Okay. Um, and, you know, even though New York's this crazy big city, the industry is small and you end up meeting people. And so, yeah, we had a lot of mutual friends. And uh, he was living in Portland, getting ready to open Ava Jeans. I was living in New York working with Happy Cooking, and we just sort of stayed in touch. So when I got back to town, we just sort of reconnected. Yeah. yeah. So what was it about this partnership, this opportunity that really sang with you, that resonated with you? Why was it a right fit? Um, well, I think that we, again, like back to my comment about like I think we both need each other. Uh, I think Joshua and I realized we saw in each other maybe like a pretty dynamic yin yang relationship where he had all the things in the industry that I don't have. Like what? So, I mean, Joshua's an amazingly um, creative mind, not just on the plate, but just. You're not sp- creative? I am a little <laughs> bit creative, but not really. Okay. I never excelled in like the art world yeah. or, uh, you know, I, I, I can like play music cause it follows rules, but I'm, I've never been a great, like, uh, you know, artist. So he's very creative. He's also, um, I mean, he's a fantastic chef. He has an amazing ability to think of food and run restaurants. Um, and I think that what's cool about Joshua is he also cares deeply about the entire experience of a restaurant, not just how the food tasted. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and I think he would say this too. He doesn't have like a business background and so, that's kind of what I was like excited to help with. So what was, yeah. So you're starting to paint these clear lanes. Mm-hmm. He was more back of house, more of the creative element mm-hmm. and you were more the rigid rule follower systems, processes, procedures yeah, type totally. dude. Yeah. So, um, what did this, how did this evolve? Take us through yeah. the, the formation yeah. of uh, submarine hospitality. Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, I moved back to Portland without a job okay. uh, and not knowing what I was going to do. My wife and I had this dream of opening up like an Israeli style food cart or small restaurant that did like shawarma and falafel and really just like, uh, um, uh, yeah, I like side note, just was just in Copenhagen. And the first thing I ate off the plane was shawarma. Oh, God. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we wanted to do like a really classic, authentic Middle East, like Tel Aviv, Istanbul, like shawarma, falafel, pita sandwich. And we felt like that was just totally missing in Portland. So we had this business plan that we had been working on together, my wife and I, and, um, but neither of us are chefs. And so we were back to Portland and uh, I was just sort of like unsure of what I was going to do. Maybe I was going to consult with some people, but I didn't know. We didn't have a chef here and we didn't have a like network of investors or money to open a restaurant. And so Joshua and I went out to Beers 
one night and we were sort of talking and he was like, well, what are you, what are you going to do? And I sort of felt like my idea was really special. So at this point you guys aren't talking about partnership. You're no. just friends talking yeah, about just friends right. okay. talking about life. So he's like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, well, you know, Savan and I have an idea of like this idea. And I thought it was pretty special and unique, not in the world, but for Portland. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to say why, cause I, I was like, I, I don't want someone else to beat me to it. Oh, uh, okay. So, cause I, I, I still want to do that, yeah. that concept today. Uh, we're actually working on it. Sweet. So, um, so I was like, well, so we, I kind of hemmed and hawed and didn't really say, and I was like, well, what are you working on? Does this and, mean I have to wait to, pr- to publish this episode before? No, 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 okay. no. <laughs> so then he was like, well, I'm kind of working on something with Sam, who is the, at that point he was the chef de cuisine at David Jeans. Okay. And like, we both sort of were just like, all right, I'll tell you what my idea is if you tell me what your <laughs> idea is. And we both just like Middle Eastern food. So we both said that. Nice. And I was like, no way. You're going to do a Middle Eastern restaurant? And so he was like, yeah, Sam is going to leave Ava Jeans, and we're going to open up a restaurant together, and it's going to be a Middle Eastern restaurant. So this time, Ava Jeans is owned by Dwayne. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Sam is the chef de cuisine, and uh, Joshua is the executive Exactly. Got you. So this was the first time where, like, Joshua was going to branch out and do something outside of Ava Jeans as an owner. So... Joshua and Sam were hatching this plan to do what would become Tusk in a hotel. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I'd love to help you guys. So initially I just agreed to help those guys do Tusk in this hotel. I saw pretty quickly that I thought the hotel deal was really bad. And Why? What was bad uh, about the deal? So it exists, and I don't want to... Uh, say anything too bad about anyone, but it just seemed like maybe the hotel operator was running out of money and was going to sort of screw the restaurant and, um, was going to sort of low budge some things. And then it just felt like the whole thing was going a little upside down. Okay. And so I, I think I was the one who was just like, you guys, we have the concept. We have Sam, we have Joshua, we have me. Let's just go do it together somewhere else. Yeah. So I convinced those guys and we started raising money to go do Tusk, which is where we're sitting right now. Yeah. So take us through that process of raising money, some key lessons, some some ways we should approach getting the capital, things that you guys did. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, uh, where'd you get it from? Can you say that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I I know where it came from. uh, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to ask because I'm not sure that I know how to do it right. But um, (laughs) so you pulled it off. We we scrapped it together. Yeah. Um, yeah, The plane, I like to say, describe Tusk as uh, the plane was ripping down the, the runway and. We were not achieving liftoff <laughs> until the last five feet of the runway. Nice. Uh, this place was going to open or not, but we, we managed to pull it together, thankfully, to some really great um, people that believed in our idea. Okay. So um, did you guys take the friends, family, and fools approach? or That's probably accurate. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> uh, so we, I mean, friends and family made up a big chunk of the people that invested money into Tusk, and then we had the good fortune of meeting some, you know, some people that high net worth individuals that believed in what we were doing that I think, you know, probably didn't need to, but believed in improving Portland and wanted to sort of help us open our concept. So one thing we haven't even kind of touched on is the fact that you now own, um, Ava Jane's. Yeah. 
and that was uh, Dwayne's restaurant. Yeah, totally. So it sounds like Joshua and Sam didn't just jump ship there. Like, exactly. Yeah. So Sam left. Okay. And was preparing to open Tusk, and sometime between January of 2016 and Tusk's opening, which was August of 2016, so just over two years ago, um, you know, we Joshua and I decided rather than just open Tusk. Let's form a, a company together. Okay. So we clearly had decided that we were good business partners and then we had more ideas to do than just Tusk. And so we decided rather than, um, I think a lot of restaurant groups open something, then something else, then something else. And then they realize everyone calls us like, oh, the guys that did that one place. Yeah. So we were like, from the beginning, we're like, let's just have a name. That overarching. Let's umbrella. call our company something and let's launch tusk with that so that everyone knows at the beginning that they can say like this this is submarine hospitality this is what they do okay Um, and then in the roll-up to that opening Dwayne um approached us with an offer to take over Ava jeans okay so we did so was Dwayne getting out of the restaurant business okay so he had enough of the restaurant yeah i think for Dwayne, you know he's had this amazing hospitality focused career but i think maybe the sort of high input you know, I wouldn't describe Ava Jeans as fine dining, but for Portland, it kind of more is. I just think that that's maybe a level of input that he was not interested in anymore. And he wanted to focus on his other businesses, which still exist also, which would be, you know, he still has the Woodsman Tavern. He still has this concept called Holiday. And he has um, a new coffee company that he's going to be launching. Nice. So I, I think he, yeah, I think he wants to do that more than anything else. So I think he saw, you know, these two two guys who's like owning and running Ava jeans is like right in the wheelhouse of what we want to do. And he just sort of, um, you know, to his credit, like made us a great offer. And so we, we took him up on it. So you opened Tusk, uh, to really great, uh, you know, acclaim right out of the gate. Yeah. Uh, it's been open now for like about two years. Yeah. So what did you do? Right. Take us through what you think it was about Tusk that kind of hit the, the nail on the head. Well, I definitely would say, um, you know, for me personally, I applied some of those lessons learned that we talked about earlier. Like, um, I wanted to make sure that Tusk felt like family when you walked in, that whether you were visiting from somewhere else or you lived in the neighborhood, that we tried to make you a regular. Um, And, you know, we knew mostly based on Joshua and Sam's reputations that we were going to have a shot. You know, people were going to take note. And, and that's a real fortunate situation because a lot of people open restaurants and just no one finds out yeah. about it. So we knew we were going to get people to come check us out. And that was a sort of known. But I was I said, you know, let's not be that restaurant that has like that epic high. And then two years later, people are like, oh, yeah, that place. You know, we got to build regulars. We so it's been do- two years. Did you guys still think you're that place that has that reputation? Have you lost your your juve? Have you or mojo? Well, have you lost your? Momentum? I would say what I'm really happy about, and the the reason that I consider Tusk a success is that it's been busy since day one, but the type of busy evolved over those two years from that sort of food tourist like i'm gonna go check that box so that i can say i checked it out to we get a lot of regulars here Mm. and that means that we've been successful by developing regulars by making connections in the neighborhood and by ultimately like developing a real good word of mouth 
reputation with people in Portland. And so for me, it's all about, you know, that's what I wanted us to be. What's your advice on developing regulars? Uh, well, that's to me, that's all about teaching staff. Um, that's all about what are you teaching staff? Take us through what that process looks like. So, I mean, I think for one, hiring people, hiring the right people is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, we opened Tusk with such a wonderful staff. And I think that that really is probably the a number one thing that we did right was we started with a great staff. Um, so how do you not budge from that standard that you set for yourself? What, what things you put in place to make sure that you're not willing to sacrifice anything on the quality of your people? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is maybe to be totally transparent, like something that I'm still learning. Uh, I'm busier now personally than I was two years ago with things that aren't necessarily all at Tusk. And so trusting the next wave of managers to achieve those goals is a real, uh, is a nerve wracking sort of next version of growth for me. So, you know, we have, I think in the beginning I spent a lot of my own hours here and now I don't spend as many of my own hours here and I'm okay with that because I feel like the people that are here now are, I, they've been set in place by myself or Joshua and they're owning it now, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there are times where, yeah, there are times where like there are people working that I don't necessarily feel like I had a great connection with. I didn't necessarily hire them, but, um, I trust that they're carrying on that sense of hospitality because I think it's sort of a torch that keeps getting passed along. You know what I mean? Okay. So the original question was how do you create loyal customers? And that the answer was by hiring the right people and how to ask, how do you hire the right people? Yeah. What standards you put in place in place? And you said you're still working on it. Yeah. I mean that, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't, I feel like that's a real evolving process for okay, us. So it never ends. Yeah. Oh, okay. What, what are some of the other var- variables that go into creating those loyal customers? Um, well, I mean, I think it's, it goes back to some of the things I was saying earlier where it's, uh, it's all about what does it really mean to care about someone's experience and not doing the unnecessary stuff that's like, uh, it's connecting with people on a real personal level. So, you know, I think we try to encourage people to have real conversations, get to know people. You know, if you see someone looking at a map, ask them what, what they're doing later. Ask them if they need some help. You know, um, if you if you have just a real, you know, I think it's at this point, it's probably like written on like some tablet somewhere. But Danny Myers, like turning over stones method of just like just ask them a couple of questions, yeah. just find out what they're doing. And they might be like, Oh, I just moved in across the street. Great. Like you should be a regular here. I want to get to know you. I'm going to get to know your name. And then I think, so that's sort of like that initial mentality. I think part two is like using your memory, remembering what someone had last time they came in when they walk in, just being like, Oh, you like your Manhattans on the rocks. Right. And then that's a huge thing for people. So your publicist, um, give me some talking points, and I want to make sure I, I don't just ignore those. So okay. she wanted me to point out that you guys opened uh, to, to Food and Wine's best restaurant That's right, right out of the gates. What was what was that like opening and just getting like this like wave of people like oh like this place is legit. That was I mean I'm paying attention to you, uh, Lila. Don't worry. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that the Food and Wine top ten was a huge boost. Mm-hmm. 
for us, I think it was probably about nine months in. Um, and it felt unbelievably, you know, validating and exciting to be recognized on a national level like that. Um, and more than anything, I think for, for me, it put a like energy in the staff. Mm -hmm. They felt like they were part of that. Yeah. And And people want to be a part of something. And I think that's, you know, really it's, it's this simple and it's this hard, right? Like at the end of the day, I think success has a lot to do with, are you the cool kids? Right. Which it's not that simple. Obviously you got to be a certain person. You have to have certain values. You have to hold yourself a certain way. But when you open a restaurant and you're instantly like perceived as like the hit place, you can attract onto yourself these great people that you're talking about that you need to create that loyalty in your, in your, with your guests. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we did, we had a few really great early accolades. So what was it about this restaurant that you think gave you that early acclaim? Well, I mean, I think you can't talk about Tusk without talking about Sam Smith's food. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am not a chef, so I can say this with zero ego. He's making amazing food. Yeah. The food that's coming out of that kitchen is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Uh, and people respond to it. I think we also, I I do think we were thoughtful in the cuisine type. I do think that at that point, maybe Portland was a little fatigued with like pork belly and grits and like heavy, heavy, heavy duty food. And Tusk's fare is definitely a little lighter and leaning more on the vegetables and, um, and I think that people really responded well to that. I think the other thing you have to take into consideration too is that uh, people, I mean, you have a reputation, right? And I think a lot of people open a restaurant without a reputation. Yeah. They just, because it's always what they want to do. But both of you spent up to this point like almost like 10 plus years yeah. in food and beverage. Sure. Building your reputation, learning the industry, building your networks, and be, being a person of value, coming together. And all, you can't just ignore that sort of thing. Like you can't just go out of the gates with no experience and without a reputation yeah. and expect to get those kind of accolades. Yeah. It was, I mean, for sure, you know, Joshua and Sam's culinary background locally. I mean, no one knew who I was locally. Uh, people knew who Joshua and Sam were. Yeah. And there was a lot of people really excited to try their food and to try Sam's food here at Tusk. Um, so, you know, that was a huge leg up for us. I also think that people responded really well to the space. Um, it's a fun. It is a great vibe in here. It's a I fun vibe. Yeah. You know, it's light and and. And we wanted, we wanted to open up a restaurant that was, uh, felt transportive even in the winter for people because Portland has kind of, you know, gray winters and we wanted it to sort of be this transportive vibe of like, I kind of feel like I'm in Southern California or, you know, somewhere more tropical. Cool. Yeah. All right. Anything else that you want to get out on the table before we think about wrapping up, moving to the speed round? This has been a great conversation. Cool. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Me too. Uh, I don't know. You it, Did I miss anything? No, I just want to make sure I didn't cut you short. Like, no, I speak think that, now or forever. Hold your think peace or whatever the same. You got, the, like, you got the, up to the current moment pretty so much. Let me ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this podcast is all about transforming the industry, and I yep. believe you transform an industry by transforming people. So let me ask you, how have you transformed? Who is... Luke Dirks today versus who you were, say, uh, when you first became a partner. Yeah. Um, well, I think I'm still learning that. So to be honest, um, but I would say for me, uh, I am comfortable being behind the scenes. And I think that, uh, 
when you sort of make the leap to do the entrepreneur thing, I think that it can be um, exciting to see your name written in the piece of article or, uh, you know, interviewed or like something like this is, is really fun. Yeah. But um, I'm not like the centerpiece of the media for our company. And I'm really comfortable with that. And I think that when we, when I set out to do like the entrepreneur restaurant thing, I maybe thought at some point it would be more about me and I'm glad that it's not. And I think I'm more comfortable with that than I used to be. Yeah. Uh, great quote. That's really stuck with me for a while. Probably one of my, my earliest interviews was with the Octavia Mantilla. You probably heard, never heard of that name, but you probably heard of best restaurants. Mm-hmm. And Octavia yep. Mantilla is the, the director of operations for Best Restaurants. And his quote was, you can accomplish anything if you don't mind who gets the credit. Yeah. 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 And for me, that's like that's become my real mentality is like I see myself as the coach and the star players out there dunking on everyone, getting like the interviews. Yeah. And that's cool. So but were you like, surprised when I asked for an interview with you and not Joshua? You're yeah. Like, did he get the yeah. name wrong? Does he sure? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, you know, my business partner has over the last two years kind of had a, like an epic launch yeah. of a cookbook that won a James Beard award, traveling the world, getting interviewed, cooking at festivals. And that's cool. Like I'm really cool with that. Um, it's fun to, you know, to sit around and talk about yourself. Well, this wasn't sometimes. a mistake. I, I did intend to interview you. And I appreciate it. <laughs> cool. Well, this has been a great conversation. Let's take a break to, to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Sounds good. Your job as a restaurant owner or manager is to paint a picture of the job done right and to empower your employees with the tools and knowledge they need to excel. This is why you need to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system trusted by our industry's most recognized names. With Wisetail, quickly scale your training initiatives across all locations, empower your employees to take control of their own learning and professional growth, foster communication and engagement through their integrated training and communication tools and ensure long-term scalable success with the help of their best in-breed client experience team. They'll take you from goal setting and implementation to ongoing strategy and best practices training to make sure you maximize your ongoing investment in your training and your programs. And if you use my links, you'll get your first three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable. Or find the banner in the show notes. Finally, a simple, affordable, and legal way to share the music that best represents your brand. It's called Soundtrack Your Brand. Get access to soundtracks tailored for any business. Side note, studies have shown that playing the right music can impact your sales. Do you have questions about what that right music is? Soundtrack Your Brand can help you there too. Here's a fun fact. I'm sure a lot of you out there listening to this already have a Spotify account. Well, you can take playlists from your account and import them directly into SoundtrackYourBrand.com. And my guests are always saying on the show that their restaurants are an extension of their own personal brand. Well, so isn't your music. And now you can marry these things together legally. Unlike Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack Your Brand is licensed for business use. Skip the hassle of ASCAP and BMI because with Soundtrack Your Brand, it's already included. You can even schedule music for the whole week and adapt the music for each day part. Typically, this deal goes for $26.99 per month, but if you act now before the end of August, you can get this deal for $19.99 per location per month 
for life. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. And we're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, mm. trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, I think it's a bit of a theme for the conversation, but I think um, being someone who you know has a great sense of empathy and then having finding other people like that too. I think that's ultimately what the restaurant industry is all about. It's like if you don't if you're not empathetic, it doesn't work. What's your biggest weakness? Um I get excited about a lot of different things and uh get get busy. I think that getting distracted it, maybe can get distracting. Okay. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Mm, I like to I like to sort of look for someone who has um a well rounded interest set. I think that interesting people make great employees and, and I think that I like to find people that have, you know, a lot of interesting things to say and talk about. What's your biggest challenge today? Biggest challenge today is navigating the ever changing landscape of labor in the restaurant industry. How are you combating this challenge? Uh, well, I would say we are, we, we've been given a bit of a break in the, Oregon restaurant industry because we are back to being allowed to share tips with the back of house. Um, so that's kind of given us a pass, but I don't think that's the answer for the long haul. Um, we're working on a more, you know, as I think everyone is maybe the next version of how restaurant pricing and payment works. What is the answer for the long run? I think eventually tipping is going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Um, well, I think that certainly from a manager perspective, I teach our managers to always think of themselves as sort of the highest and the lowest position in the restaurant industry. So highest means you need to have perspective. You need to have an opinion. You need to be willing to manage people and control a situation. Lowest means if every server's table side selling wine and the toilet's broken, you're the one that's going to fix it. Yeah. Beautiful. And what does that communicate? I think it it communicates a certain level of, um, you know, humility and, uh, you know, there's not a, there doesn't need to be a sort of hierarchy in terms of who does the shitty job. I think that as long as it's done, yeah, the pun, the pun intended, (laughs) um, I think that's, that's a real respect thing. I think that if, if a manager is standing at the host stand and asks the server to go deal with the broken toilet on a Friday at seven thirty, I think that's pretty uh, indicative of someone that doesn't actually care very much. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So something standard within your four walls, Mm. but not standard within the industry. Uh, Well, I think that one of our standards as a company is kind of our motto, which is locally sourced, aggressively seasonal. I think that our restaurants stand out for their support of local farms, perhaps more than any other I've been a part of. Um, we buy from, you know, probably 80 local farm or producer or makers. And I think that that's the future of this industry. How do you manage all those invoices? We have a great, uh, we have a great in-house CFO. His name's Teddy Albertson. He started this year and he's saved my life. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant operator? You can't say it's sitting at the table. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's good. It's a good one, but it's going to branch out. <laughs> oh, I feel like I just had an answer to this question recently. Uh, 
I don't. I don't have a great answer for a book. I haven't read any books lately. Okay. What about an online like resource or tool that you? Uh, well, I lo- I listen to actually listen to a lot of podcasts. Okay. Um, I love how I built this. It's one of my favorites. Nice. Uh, they end up hitting a lot of food and beverage product stuff a lot. Um, and maybe someday I'll have the same uh, promotional backing as yeah. NPR to put my <laughs> podcast. Up. I uh, think you should. Get that. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, for me, I guess my my perspective has changed. It used to be more industry focused, and now it's more business and entrepreneur focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, how I made this? Anything other good podcasts out there? Um, well, not necessarily industry related, but I've been loving the uh, RF, RFK tapes okay. that those guys did. Uh, and I've been recently listening to Slow Burn, which is one about like uh, the uh, season one was about Watergate and the Nixon trials. And season two is um, what is season two going to be about? I can't remember. So that was how I built this. Yeah. Uh, what was the second one? Uh, NFRK or uh, RF, the, the RFK tapes. RFK. RFK. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> RFK. Thank you. It was all about the about Robert Kennedy's assassination, gotcha. and yeah. then the slow and burn. slow burn. Got it. I'm, yeah. I'm into like pol- political, uh, <laughs> like um, conspiracy theory podcast. I dig that stuff too. Yeah. Okay, so what's one technology you've adopted within your four walls? This is like a in-house technology, mm-hmm. POS reservation, yep. things along those lines. A technology that you're leveraging. Uh, two that stand out for me are Resi. Uh, we use Resi for our reservations platform. We opened Tusk with Resi and we switched AvaGenes from OpenTable to Resi. So what is it about Resi? There's a few options out there right now. What yeah. was it about Resi that most appealed to you? Um, well, I might feel differently if we had a different business model. Like if we were a sort of pre prepaid ticketed restaurant, I really like talk. Um, but for me, Resi is just the most sort of plain and simple. You want to make a reservation. Here's how you do it. Yep. And from my perspective, I can manage, we can manage tables and inventory really easily and it doesn't cost very much. Yep. You said you had a couple. Was there another one that came to mind? Yeah. Um, I also really like plate IQ. What's plate IQ? Plate IQ is essentially invoice recognition technology. So you set up your account and then rather than uh, data entry, putting all of your invoices into QuickBooks, you scan all of your invoices, Plate IQ recognizes them, and then all you basically do is approve them, and then they populate. In How much time a week would you say you save? Uh, well, that a, month. a combination of Plate IQ and a few other things that Teddy, our CFO, set up are probably saving us as a company probably like a full time person a month. Wow! Yeah. Uh, so that you justify your expenses that way. Yeah. Uh, what were the other things that Teddy set up? That can you think of them? Uh, well, they're more like accountant speak things that uh, okay. I can't necessarily tell you not because they're secret because I don't know what they're <laughs> okay. called. I appreciate the transparency. Uh, but the one that sort of is like where the rubber hits the road is the plate IQ. Cause that's where like our chefs love it because they just scan them and then that's it. They're Beautiful. done. Yeah. This is the last question. It's a doozy. So get ready. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true about your success and for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Mm. Um, I think it might be. It might go back to that first thing we talked about, which is just you know there are no unimportant people. I think that business is 
um, it's an easy place to get kind of wound up in like on uh, things that are all about money and, and sort of fame and hierarchy. But ultimately, like, I think it's all about people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. Um, I think the the second one would be the the sense of maybe um, sticking to, at least in the restaurant industry, really trying to stick to a local supply chain. Um, I think that the restaurant industry has the ability to really affect change in the world. And I think that it has the ability to impact positively or negatively. And I think that we can choose how what we buy. And I think that's huge. All right. So no unimportant people stick to a local supply chain. Number three. Mm, number three is like, it's all about just ultimately hospitality is about having fun, breaking bread together, relationships, uh, not taking yourself too seriously. Uh, you know, waking up at the beginning of the day and realizing like, Whatever happens, what we're doing is pretty fun, and it's it's a blessing to be able to do it. No unimportant people sticking to local supply chains and have fun. Luke Dirks, this has been a great conversation. I've loved sitting with you, sharing your your mentorship, your knowledge. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one independent operator, somebody you admire uh, and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Oh, well, I think you, you're on the East Coast, so I think when you get back, you got to go meet with Gabriel Stillman. Gabriel, look up. I'm coming yep. after you, man. Okay. I would love to get you on the show and let the folks at home know if we want to maybe come join your team or follow you. What's the best way to connect? Uh, email addresses. So submarine hospitality is our company. So we got a email address there. It's info at submarine hospitality.com or both Ava jeans and Tusk have sort of the same setups. All right. So head yeah. over to restaurant slash Luke Dirks. That's L U K E. D-I-R-K-S. I'll have a summary of today's discussion over there uh, as well as a link to how to connect into the services that were recommended. Uh, Luke, again, just thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share your your story, your mentorship. There is no questioning, my friend. You are unstoppable. (laughs) Thanks. Cheers. Well, there is another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Luke Dirks. Wow. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed this one. I think the big, I mean, there are a ton of little nuggets in this conversation, but the big takeaway is that that mentality of uh, just kind of stripping away the formalities, like he says, and making it personal, making it about relationships and being real and people trust real. And there was just some really good advice in this episode about living intentionally to develop those relationships, to surround yourself with the people that have the same values of you that are interesting that other people are going to find interesting because again, it's all about those relationships and you need to have your standards for the people you're surrounding yourself with, the people that are going to be those who are representing your brand and the ones doing all this relationship relationship building at the table. I mean, your job is to be doing relationship building at the table too, but even beyond that in the community with other business owners, but you need to surround yourself with the people that have those, those same values, the same mission to correlate, create these, uh, repeat customers, these, uh, just endless countless amounts of relationships in your business is what you need to be after. And I think that really echoed in today's conversation. So great stuff. And guys, this was the last recording on my two in a month long road trip. I just need to take this moment to thank anyone and everyone who supported me on this journey. 
Uh, I couldn't have done it without those who were willing to open up their home to me, who fed me, who gave me leads, who were there just to listen when I needed somebody to talk to. You're on the road for two and a half months. You don't have any of your family, your friends right there. And it was incredible the amount of support I got from complete strangers, the people that are getting behind this mission of inspiring and empowering and transforming our industry. I don't want to do this alone anymore. I I want this to be a community. I want to bring people into this mission of trying to change our world. And if you're interested uh, in contributing to this mission, email me, Eric at Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Uh, One thing I want to be better about is opening up to you guys and sharing my thoughts with you, sharing my emotions with you, uh, and really letting you in. Uh, I think that one of the the biggest challenges I've had with this podcast is living two different lives, right? There's Eric Cacciatore, uh, then there's Eric Cacciatore Restaurant Unstoppable. And not really letting you guys into my life and sharing my thoughts with you. Maybe I'm uh, worried about criticism or ridicule or uh, I don't know what it is, but I could be a lot better about just sharing my thoughts and letting you guys into my life and into my world and what's going on. So uh, going forward, I'm going to be trying to do that. Uh, So right now I'm going to let you know I'm in back in New Hampshire. Uh, I need to hit up uh, some, some people fast to to keep up with my agreement to, uh, the, the agreement I made with my sponsor. So if, if you are in the Boston area, North Shore, South Shore, uh, Seacoast, New England, reach out to me. I need some guests. I need to make an example of a few people. If you have some people in mind, let me know. Put them on my radar. Again, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com is how you reach me. Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and Twitter and slash restaurantunstoppable on Facebook. I really want to make this a community. I, I want to start developing relationships, not just being transactional with my guests. I think that's one thing I've definitely learned in this podcast is, is making it about relationships and developing deep, meaningful relationships with people. I'm on the road doing six to ten interviews interviews a week like wham bam thank you ma'am like that was good for me i hope it was good for you and then on to the next that's against everything that i preach here at restaurant unstoppable so i really want to start going back to the people that i've made really good connections with connections with and diving into their networks and being more personal uh personable or personal i don't know what the which was the right word there but anyway um You get what I'm saying. Uh, So if you have any thoughts, please share them with me. And uh, again, just thank you to everyone who's helped me. And for you guys, my listeners, for believing in this podcast and showing that you believe in this podcast with your downloads, I would not be able to to do it without you. So just know that I recognize you and I'm so grateful for you. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. I think I rambled on well enough. Uh, I love you all. And Until next time, peace out.